Hello, it's the Sasquatch here from the Busted Barstools podcast with episode 2 of Monsters of the Clubhouse. This episode features on Randall or Randy Woodfield. In the 1974 NFL draft, the Green Bay Packers selected Randall Randy Woodfield with the 428th pick. After a brief stint with the Wisconsin-based franchise, Woodfield became one of the most violent killers in US history. He's more commonly referred to as the I-5 killer. This episode does feature adult themes including depictions of extreme violence and vivid portrayals of sexual assault. It is intended for a mature audience and listener discretion is advised. Chapter 1 Childhood and College Woodfield was born on December 26, 1950, in Salem, Oregon, the third child of an upper middle class family. His mother was a homemaker and his father an executive at Pacific Northwest Bell. He has two older sisters, one of whom went on to become a doctor and the other an attorney. The Woodfield family was well known and respected in their community. Woodfield was raised in Otter Rock, Oregon, a small seaside town on the central Oregon coast, approximately 8 miles north of Newport. Popular among his peers, Woodfield was a football star at Newport High School. Though his childhood was by all accounts stable, Woodfield began to exhibit sexually dysfunctional behaviours during junior high school, particularly exposing himself in public. While in high school, Woodfield exposed himself to a group of teenage girls on Yaquina Bay Bridge. He was arrested for indecent exposure. His football coaches helped conceal the incident to prevent him from being ousted from the team, though his parents forced him to attend therapy over the incident. After graduating high school, Woodfield's criminal record was expunged and he attended Treasure Valley Community College in Ontario, Oregon, later transferring to Portland State University in Portland in 1970, where he played for the Portland State Vikings as a wide receiver. Woodfield may have been best known at Portland State University though for his devotion to the Campus Crusade for Christ and the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. A former teammate who spoke on the condition of anonymity recalled it seemed really important to him that he came across as someone who would do the right thing almost like it was keeping him together. Teammates and coaches memories of Woodfield very wildly. Some remember him as an unassuming and quiet if a bit odd. He didn't really fit in says Anthony Studemeyer who was a freshman quarterback at Portland State University in 1973. He'd make out of the blue and off the wall comments. Despite his thriving in college, Woodfield was, however, arrested on several occasions for petty crimes. First in 1970, while at Treasure Valley Community College, for vandalising the apartment of his ex girlfriend, and later in 1972, for public indecency in Vancouver, Washington. In 1973, he was arrested again for public indecency in Multoma County. Woodfield chose to drop out of college three semesters shy of graduating with his Bachelor in Science in Physical Education. Chapter 2 The Green Bay Packers and Professional Career 
Armed with the resources and facing the public relations pressures of a modern-day NFL team, the Packers would have conducted a detailed background check on Goldfield, and the proverbial red flags would have flapped wildly. As it was, having done, done little in the way of intel, Green Bay remained interested in Woodfield. In the first round of the 1974 NFL Draft, the Packers selected Richmond running back Barty Smith, who would go on to start 42 games in 70 seasons. The next day, they used their 15th round pick on Dave Wanstead, a natural born leader who never played it down, but went on to become an NFL head coach. Two rounds later, the 428 pick, Green Bay took Woodfield. These players drafted may not have been dynastic players. The Packers would have won the first two Super Bowls within the 60s. But this is a celebrated franchise. Woodfield was offered a one-year contract to serve as a skilled football player for $16,000. The deal came laden with bonuses. An extra 2,000 if he caught 25 fast passes. 3,000 if he caught 30. Woodfield's contract also stipulated that he keep himself in peak condition, avoid consorting with gamblers, and wear a coat and necktie in public places. He signed almost immediately, and the money enabled him to quit his job at a Portland area burger chef. But beyond that, this was all validation. He was on the verge of playing in the NFL. Everyone made such a big thing when he was drafted, one of Woodfield's roommates told the organ. That April, Woodfield attended a minicamp in Scottsdale, Arizona, an innovation of Green Bay coach Dan Devine. A special teams coach, Hank Kuhlman, explained beforehand to the letter players that minicamp would be a get-acquainted period so that in July we can all start working toward a common goal, the championship. Afterward, would have returned to Portland, galvanised, impressed with the speed of the other players, but confident that he would make the team. Per the Packers' requests, he spent the next month staying in shape and working in his pass catch. In June, the team sent him a first-class plane ticket, along with instructions for an airport limo pickup that would take him to the team's training camp in De Pere, Wisconsin. Woodfield declined, opting instead to drive out from Oregon. We arrived. His bio in the Packers' media guide listed him at 6 feet, 170 pounds. In July... Woodfield was among the rookies who competed against the Bears in a scrimmage at Lambeau Field. Writing in the Green Bay press release, Cliff Crystal, Cliff Crystal, now the Packers team historian, sought out Woodfield for a quote. I'm pretty excited, the young whiteout said. I'm really thankful for the opportunity. Woodfield survived early cuts, and according to friends in Portland, he acquitted himself well, and that he felt as if he belonged. The Packers thought otherwise. They released Woodfield on August 19, 1974, before their season had begun. Woodfield would later contend, not unreasonably, that his prospects were hindered because Green Bay was, was dressing a running game that season. Police would contend at the team at other reasons. Rather than return to Oregon, Woodfield remained in Wisconsin, setting for an hour and a half drive west in Akasha, where he played for the semi-pro Manitowoc Chiefs and moonlighted as a press breaker. For any of that pay attention, Manitowoc would be the setting of the acclaimed 2015 Netflix documentary Making a Murder. While he would have preferred to spend his Sundays at Lambeau, Woodfield reckoned 
that playing on Saturdays nearby for the Chiefs. Maybe Packers execs would notice him and can reconsider their decision. Teammates from that stop recall Woodfield as a smooth operator, a ladies man and a bit strange. Fred O'Claire, a teammate and roommate, recalls Woodfield bringing home a trinket he'd applied at a local Christian bookstore. How much was that? O'Claire inquired. Well, said Woodfield. It wasn't really for sale, so I stole it. As Woodfield had at Portland State, he ran precise routes and distinguished himself with speed and manner to walk. In the 1974 Central States Football League Championship game, he caught a pair of passes for 42 yards, though the Madison Mustangs beat the Chiefs 14 zip. The Packers, meanwhile, went 6 8, and as a team, averaged only 13 completions per game. After the season, though, Woodfield was dropped by the Chiefs. No reason was given publicly. There were rumours, however, that the team had off-field concerns. The Chiefs, along with, with their league, disbanded in 1976. And while there were no public arrest records for Woodfield in Wisconsin, a detective would later learn that Woodfield was involved in at least 10 cases of decent exposure across the state. As one Wisconsin law enforcement officer recalls years later, Woodfield couldn't keep the thing in his pants. By multiple counts, Woodfield was devastated by being cut. Deeply hurt was the phrase he would use later on. And curiously, Woodfield acted as if he knew there would be no more invitations from other teams. With his ambitions of being a pro footballer killed off, he drove back to the West Coast, and then the rampage started. next part of the podcast is particularly distressing and depictive. Um, once again, listen discretion is advised. Chapter 3. First Crime Spree and Murders. Woodfield left Wisconsin in late 1974 and returned to Portland, disgraced by his failure to maintain his football career. In early 1975, several Portland women were accosted by a knife-wielding man, forced to perform oral sex and then robbed of their handbags. Law enforcement responded to the string of crimes by having female officers act as decoys. On March 3rd, 1975, Woodfield was arrested after being caught with marked money from one of the undercover cops. Upon interrogation, he confessed to the crimes, blaming poor sexual impulse control, which he claimed was a result of his use of steroids. In April 1975, he pled guilty to reduced charges of second-degree robbery. Woodfield was sentenced to 10 years in prison and was freed on parole in July 1979 after having served four years. On October 9, 1980, Cherry Ayres, an X-ray technician and former class field of Woodfield, was raped and murdered in her apartment in downtown Portland. Her body was discovered on October 11th by her fiancé. She had been bludgeoned and stabbed repeatedly in the neck. Ayers, a University of Oregon graduate, had known Woodfield since second grade, having attended the same schools in Newport. During Woodfield's prior four-year imprisonment, he and Ayers were corresponded via letters. Suspecting Woodfield's involvement, Ayers' family provided his name to law enforcement. 
He was questioned, but refused to sit for a polygraph test. Homicide detectives found his answers generally evasive and deceptive, but because his blood type did not match semen found in the victim's body, no charges were filed. One month later, on the morning of November 27th, Woodfield arrived at the North Portland home of Darcy Renee Fix, planning to assault her. Woodfield had known Fix during college as an ex-girlfriend of one of his close friends. Douglas Altig was at Fix's home when Wood- Woodfield arrived. Both Fix and Altig were subsequently bound and shot to death, execution style, in the home. Fix's 32 caliber revolver. Fix's 32 caliber revolver was also missing from the scene. Due to his acquaintance with Fix, Woodfield was questioned about the murders, but law enforcement found no concrete evidence pointing to his involvement. Chapter 4 I 5 Bandit Robberies. After committing the murders of Fix and Altig, Woodfield began a series of robberies throughout the Northwest. On December 9, 1980, Woodfield, wearing a fake beard, held up a Vancouver, Washington gas station at gunpoint. In Eugene, Oregon, four nights later, on December 13th, he raided an ice cream parlor. On December 14th, he robbed the drive-by restaurant in Albany. During one of the robberies, Woodfield wore what appeared to be a band-aid or aesthetic tape across the bridge of his nose. Similar nasal strips similar to nasal strips worn by football players. On December 21st, Woodfield, again wearing a false beard, accosted a waitress in Seattle, trapping her in a restroom bathroom and forcing her at gunpoint to give him a handjob. By January 1981, law enforcement had dubbed the robber the I-5 Bandit, given his apparent preference for committing crimes along the Interstate 5 corridor. On January 8th, he held up the same Vancouver gas station he had robbed in December, this time forcing a female attendant to expose her breasts as she entered the cash register. Three days later, on January 11th, he robbed the market in Eugene. The next day, January 12th, he shot and wounded a female grocery clerk at a store in Sutherland, Oregon. On January 14th, a man matching the description of the I-5 bandit and wearing a false beard invaded a home occupied by two sisters, aged 8 and 10. He forced the girls to undress and sexually assaulted them. Four four days later in Salem, a man matching the same description entered an office building and sexually abused two women, Sherry Hull and Beth Wilmot, after which he killed Hull and wounded Wilmot, leaving her dead. On January 26th and 29th, he travelled to Southern Oregon and committed robberies in Eugene, Medford and Grants Pass. In the latter location, two females, a clerk and a customer, were assaulted by the robber. Chapter 5. Later Murdered On February 3rd, 1981, the bodies of Donica Eckert and her 14-year-old daughter were found together in a bed in their home in Mountain Gate, California. Each had been shot several times in the head. Forensic tests showed that the girl had been sodomized. The same day in Reading, a female store clerk was kidnapped, raped and sodomized in a holdup. An identical crime was reported in Eureka on February 4th, with the same man robbing an Ashland, Oregon motel that night. Five days later, 
in Corvallis. A man matching the I-5 bandit's description held up a fabric store, molesting the clerk and her customer before he left. On February 12th, 1981, robberies committed by the man matching the I-5 bandit's description occurred in Vancouver, Olympia and Bellevue, Washington. The Olympia and Bellevue incidents included three sexual assaults. Upon an imp- impending visit to Portland, Woodfield planned a Valentine's Day party at the city's downtown Marriott Hotel, inviting friends and acquaintances from college. After no guests came, Woodfield drove to the Beaverton home of 18-year-old Julie Ritz, whom Woodfield had met while working as a bouncer at the Fawcett, a bar in Portland. He arrived at her home around 2am on February 15th. Around 4am, he raped and then shot Wrights in the head, killing her. Police investigating the scene determined that Wrights had had a glass of wine with her attacker and had also begun to prepare coffee. A package of instant coffee was discovered on the kitchen counter and more than the kettle had been left to completely boil down. Chapter 6. Arrest and Trials By February, the investigation was now focused on Woodfield. But by then, the I-5 bandit had struck three more times. In Eugene, twice, and with another sexual assault in Corvallis. Detectives in Marion County assembled a call log showing Woodfield had placed calls via calling cards at payphones near the mortar sites around the times they were committed. On March 5th, 1981, Woodfield was brought into the Salem Police Department for an interrogation after Lisa Garcia positively identified him in a photo lineup. His apartment in Springfield, Oregon was subsequently searched two days later by warrant. Inside, law enforcement discovered a spent 32 caliber shell casing inside a racquetball bag, as well as a roll of tape that matched the tape found on victims. On March 7th, Woodfield was taken into custody after being positively identified by several Oregon robbery victims. On March 16th, indictments for murder, rape, sodomy, attempted kidnapping, armed robbery and illegal possession of firearms were initiated from various jurisdictions in Washington and Oregon. In the summer of 1981, Woodfield was tried in Salem for the murder of Hull, as well as charges of sodomy and attempted murder of Wilmot. Wilmot testified against him in the trial and was key in the prosecution's conviction. Chris Van Dyke, son of the famous actor Dick Van Dyke, was the Marion County, Oregon District's attorney at the time and he prosecuted the case. Van Dyke would later characterise Woodfield as the coldest, most detached defendant I have ever seen. On June 26, 1981, after three and a half hours of deliberation, Woodfield was convicted of all counts and sentenced to life in prison plus 90 years. In October 1981, a second trial was held in Benton County, in which Woodfield received sodomy and weapons charges tied to one of the attacks in a restaurant bathroom. Prior to this trial, his counsel attempted to move the trial from Willamette Valley. He felt that, owing to the publicity the case received, Woodfield would not get a fair trial. The judge in the case denied counsel's request along with a request to hypnotise a prosecution witness in an effort to determine if that witness had been influenced by media coverage. Woodfield was convicted by the jury 
and an additional 35 years added to his already stated sentence. Despite the apparent links with countless other crimes and homicides, Woodfield would not be prosecuted for the majority of the crimes he was believed to have committed. Unable to afford multiple trials, the state of Oregon was satisfied with Woodfield's existing life sentence. It is worth noting though that Woodfield wasn't the only sociopath terrorising the west coast around the time. Ted Bundy's killing orgy in the northwest is believed to have begun in 1974, his first eight known victims slain in either Oregon or Washington. And roughly concurrent with the I-5 killer, Gary Ridge- Ridgeway had begun committing ritualised murder in Seattle, mostly targeting young women. It would take 20 years before he was caught, but immediately he was known as the Green River Killer, a nod to the waterway where, he first, where his first five known victims were found. sends the the story of Randall Randy Woodfield or more infamously known as the I-5 killer it's the second episode of Monster the Clubhouse most likely my last trip across the Atlantic please let us know in the comments or via Instagram what your thoughts were on that episode or who you'd like to see covered in upcoming episodes and once again thanks very much for listening Thank you.